This is Addiction Medicine Journal Club. I'm Dr. John Keenan. And I'm Dr. Sonia Del Tredici. We believe that addiction is a disease that can be treated, and we want to help you stay up to date with the latest research that you can use in your addiction practice. This week, we are going to be discussing an article about the connection between early life trauma, anxiety, depression, and stress and opioid use disorder. How are you doing today, Sonia? I'm doing fine. How are you doing, John? Excellent. Anything exciting going on in addiction medicine from your end? Well, before we get going, I just wanted to give a quick podcast update. We've put the podcasts on YouTube. The audio is the same, but we've made some PowerPoint slides that run with it. So if you want to see some of the tables and figures from the articles or just like listening to things on YouTube, you can check out our channel. I'll put the link in the show notes. As for addiction medicine news, I was interested in an opinion piece I read in the Annals of Internal Medicine about AMA discharges. And I wanted to talk about it here since this is an issue that disproportionately affects patients with opiate use disorder. I've already read some research where they've been trying to rebrand the against medical advice discharges as patient-directed discharges, although I don't know if that's any less stigmatizing. As we have seen, patients who are more socioeconomically disadvantaged are more likely to have an AMA discharge About 1.4% of all discharges in 2019 were against medical advice as compared to 4.3% among people without insurance, probably because they have financial concerns, and 18% of admissions related to opiate use and in against medical advice discharges. And I guess I have always been struck how poorly we treat patients who want an early discharge. We make the patient sign paperwork acknowledging responsibility for their risk, which I'm not really sure is necessary. And sometimes we de facto punish the patient for leaving early by refusing to give them discharge scripts, refusing to help arrange for follow-up, threatening them that their insurance isn't going to pay, even though that's a total myth. And it just doesn't sit right with me because I don't love that paternalistic, it's my way or the highway attitude. And it doesn't accept that the patient might have a reason, we might not agree with the reason, but a reason nonetheless for wanting to leave. So I really encourage the residents, and I've seen that a lot more recently, that if a patient wants to leave early, we do our best to make it safe for them, get them their scripts, get them their follow-up, try to keep them in as long as we can for a safe discharge. But often there's a good reason. It's a family emergency, a pet that needs care, drug withdrawal, of course, that's not being well-treated. Sometimes we can address it if we can gain the patient's trust and ask them why they need to leave. So what's been your experience with AMA discharges, John? I do do the inpatient consult service at St. Max's with some of our patients with opioid use disorder, and and this topic often comes up. And I think you're right. There's a lot of different reasons why people might leave. I think substance use disorder probably disproportionately affects the group that want to leave AMA. You know, a couple kind of pearls from like a risk management standpoint, because this has come up with our, our legal team before giving kind of guidance. You know, you want to work with these patients the best they can. You're still their doctor. You want to uh, take care of them. So anything that you can do, you should do, right? So arrange for antibiotics, make sure that they have the best care that they can within the constraints of what they're allowing you to do. Kind of let them know why they should still be in the hospital because it may be a misunderstanding on their part. And if you have a, a conversation with them and explain They'll often kind of work with you. And then you're right about the the AMA paperwork. Interestingly, I think that uh, at least from a risk management standpoint before, they've been somewhat uh, strong in terms of their recommendations that that paperwork does provide some legal protection if a patient were to leave AMA or patient-directed discharge uh, and something were to happen. So I don't think I'm at the point yet where I'm I'm not going to be doing that. But otherwise, you try to work with them as best as you can. Yeah, it's definitely gotten better. I remember as a resident, there was a lot of kind of 
anger against patients who wanted to leave against medical advice. And I don't see that anymore. And I worry about patients who want to leave early as well. But I think it's just, it's important to acknowledge they might have a reason to leave early. I definitely remember the only time I've been in the hospital for a prolonged amount of time, I was already a doctor. I think I tried to sign myself out AMA. It gets pretty darn tedious staying in the hospital. Sounds about right. How about you, John? Anything that you've noticed in addiction medicine news this week? So I saw this really interesting article about a fentanyl vaccine. And basically, it was from the University of Houston, and it was a a rat study about a fentanyl vaccine that had previously been developed. Most people that listen to this podcast probably have some idea of fentanyl and its ramifications in the United States. It's much more potent than our other opioids, about 50 times more potent than heroin. And when you look at the lethal dose 50, it's about one-tenth a grain of rice, which would be two milligrams as the LD50 in most patients. This vaccine specifically produces anti-fentanyl antibodies, and they basically bind to the fentanyl in the bloodstream, prevent it from crossing the blood-brain barrier, and then allow you to excrete it through the kidneys in your urine. And so basically, it blocks the euphoric effects, but also it would block the risk of respiratory suppression that is the cause of death in most patients. So I think it was really interesting. The other kind of really cool thing about this particular vaccine is that it was specific to fentanyl. So it didn't cross-react with other opioids. So if a patient needed morphine or hydrocodone or like a post-operative pain regimen, you could still use a non-fentanyl derivative. So certainly something that sounds very promising and like an interesting concept for the future. The idea is so interesting. I mean, I would love to give a fentanyl vaccine to any of my patients with opiate use disorder you know, my mind is immediately going towards all the different barriers and hurdles and problems with it. But the concept is pretty amazing. Yeah, I think the one thing that is interesting is my most vaccine hesitant patients are my patients with substance use disorder in my clinic. I I wonder how agreeable they would be to this. So that'd be my only kind of question. But I think it's a great idea. And, you know, hopefully it's something that they'd be very interested in the future. It's a totally different mechanism of action, but it makes me think of something like Sue blockade or buprenorphine, which is kind of like a fentanyl vaccine also, you know? Yeah, except this is more specific. So that's kind of, I guess its claim to fame will be that you can still use other medications for pain, although technically you can with buprenorphine as well. I would worry if it's so specific that the makers of fentanyl and the makers of the illicit opiates would just sort of change some little side chain and boom, break through the vaccine. Certainly that is a concern. So tell us about the article that we have today, Sonia. So this article is titled Effects of Early Life Trauma on Risks for Adult Opioid Use Disorder Are Mediated by Stress and Occur Independent of Depression and Anxiety. It was published in the Journal of Addiction Medicine, and it's a great article. It is important, just like the fentanyl vaccine, it's important because it gets a little bit to the root of opiate use disorder and prevention. I mean, a lot of what we do is treatment. And we try to keep people alive. We try to treat them. But we don't do a lot to address the root causes of opioid use disorder. I mean, I think the most we do in our practices is we limit our prescribing so as not to get people addicted to opioids in the first place. But something like a vaccine might prevent opioid use disorder from developing. And this article also talks about the roots of opioid use disorder. And so I was really interested in it. I've been thinking a lot about the connection between early life trauma, mental health, and opiate use disorder. You know, is the early life trauma the cause of future opiate use disorder, or is the opiate use disorder genetic? So people with opiate use disorder grew up in families where there was a lot of addiction and thus a lot of dysfunction and trauma, or does the early life trauma cause mental health problems that then lead to opiate use disorder? 
I just don't have a great handle on the connection. So that's why I was excited to read this study. So let's get started. First, talking about the clinical question. It's about early life trauma. And before I get into the specifics, I want to talk about what early life trauma is. It's defined as general, physical, emotional, or sexual events before the age of 18, which may alter normal development and have long-lasting harmful effects on later physical and psychological functioning. It has been associated with greater psychological distress, emotional reactivity, and risks for myriad emotional and physical health problems in adulthood, including substance use disorders. Patients with opiate use disorder report greater incidence of early life trauma than healthy controls and may have higher rates of early life trauma than patients with other types of psychiatric disorders. For example, more than 50% of patients with opiate use disorder report greater than or equal to four early life traumas compared to about 16% of the general population. So just sit with that for a moment. Our half of our patients with opiate use disorder have at least four or more early life traumas. They do think that early life trauma alters the neuroendocrine stress systems and some brain structures and the opioid and dopamine neurotransmitter circuits. So they know that early life trauma is a powerful, how to say this, is a powerful contributor to your future mental wellness. And they know that patients with opiate use disorder have a lot more early life trauma, but the direct connection is not clear. So that's the background. John, have you found that your patients with opioid use disorder have a lot of trauma in their backgrounds? Yeah, I mean, it's an incredibly high number that you cited there. I'm actually surprised, actually, though, still, it's it's not even higher from what I hear in the office. It seems like most people that I take care of have a very sad background and an upbringing. It's a very different scenario than the majority of us in the United States. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm actually surprised that a lot of my patients are as resilient as they are and doing as well as they do, you know, when I hear about everything that they've been through. So let's talk about the clinical question. This was an exploratory study, and it was planned as a basis for further prospective trials. So, you know, we can look forward to that hopefully in a few years. The basic clinical question is, what is the association between opiate use disorder and early life trauma? And how is this association influenced by depression, anxiety, and perceived stress? So the population included people who live in the U.S., They had to be greater than age 18, having used illicit opioids at least once in their lifetime. They were all using a platform called Mechanical Turk, which I had heard of, but a lot of people in our journal club had not heard of that. And for our listeners who haven't heard of Mechanical Turk, it's a service through Amazon where you sign up and you complete online tasks for small amounts of money. So 10 cents, 20 cents, a dollar, you might do some kind of online task like content moderation or filling out surveys, that kind of thing. So to be on Mechanical Turk, you have to have a relatively sophisticated knowledge of the internet and you have to have internet capacity. So this eliminates some of the more dysfunctional people who we might otherwise include in a study of opiate use disorder. The demographics of this study included people with a mean age of 38.6, 58.4% were female, 80% were white, 21% were Hispanic, and 87% were exposed to prescription opioids, 38% were exposed to heroin. The exposure was more early life traumas, and that was compared to less early life traumas. And the outcomes, there were a bunch of good outcomes. The first were just demographic outcomes. They looked at age, gender, race, ethnicity, income, marital status, childcare responsibilities, and which substances people use to get high. They looked at opioid use disorder as defined by the DSM-5 checklist. 
They looked at opioid use disorder related outcomes. And this I really liked, and I haven't seen this in other studies. Not only did they look at, did you have opiate use disorder? They looked at other problems related to opiates. So one or more lifetime uses of heroin, opioid withdrawal, how much money you spent on opioids in the past 30 days, history of overdoses, and your opinion on how your own trauma contributed to your opioid use. They use validated studies to measure these things. So early life trauma was measured using the early life trauma self-report inventory, which is a self-report form with 27 traumatic items on it that may have happened to you. Stress was measured using the perceived stress score, which is a 10 item scale where higher scores indicate worse stress. Depression and anxiety was measured using the Promise DSM-5 scale. And if anybody wants to see what those scales are, they will be on a PowerPoint on our YouTube channel. So, John, what do you think of the clinical question? I think it's an interesting question to see like how the two are interconnected if they are. All right. So let's talk about validity. I did think this was a valid study, although I think it did have some limitations. So some good things about it. It had a pretty good sample size, 310 patients. They had multiple embedded quality control checks, meaning they asked the same questions in different ways and saw if people's answers were consistent, that kind of thing. Only 13% of the people who initiated the study were eligible and passed all those quality control checks. They controlled for age, gender, and race. All their assessment scales were validated. They looked at these secondary markers of opiate use disorder, which I had talked about before, as well as this flat DSM-4 criteria. The outcome, which is opiate use disorder, is clinically significant, and I think it's meaningful to my patients. They also managed to observe a dose-response relationship, which makes the association more plausible. So the more early life trauma that you had, the more symptoms of opioid use disorder and the more severe your opioid use disorder was. In terms of funding, they didn't explicitly state the funding, but the work was done by the John Hopkins Department of Psychiatry. And I did not see any indication that funding would cause bias. Study does not investigate a product that might be sold later. There were some limitations. The first big one, of course, is that this is a retrospective survey study. So it cannot definitively establish causation. It's subject to difficulties with recall bias of childhood events. And we don't even have a clear time frame. We don't even know if the early life trauma preceded the development of the opiate use disorder. Again, opiate use disorder has a strong genetic component. A lot of these people may have started using opiates when they were under age 18 and also experienced their trauma around the same time. This was also what we would call a convenience sample. It was people we could find. And it was not designed to be representative of the population of people who've experienced early life trauma as a whole. As we talked about, participants had to be on Mechanical Turk. So you had to have high functioning internet knowledge. And again, not representative of our population as a whole. So to be on that platform, you have to have the internet, you have to want to work and earn some money, but you tend to earn about half of minimum wage on average. So to work for that kind of money also indicates possibly a certain level of desperation, poor job prospects that might make the sample less representative of the whole population. The data was self-reported, so we don't have any objective verification, especially of drug use, and it was not blinded. So overall, I think it was a valid study if you acknowledge the fact that it's a single point in time survey. So, John, do you think that it was valid? Yeah, I think for most of those reasons you said, the data sounds like it was pretty robust. It sounds like the only kind of limitations that I can really see is the fact that this kind of does select a very unique subgroup of patients with opioid use disorder, not kind of generalizable. And if I was going to guesstimate uh, patients that have access to a computer have the time to do this, I would imagine that they would be 
probably not likely to be homeless, have significant social determinants of health, most likely kind of reflect possibly a, a lower severity of disease, although that's just a, a guesstimate I would make. Yeah, I think you're right. I like the way you put it right. The data itself is robust, but the selection of the population is maybe not generalizable. So let's talk about the results. Bottom line, which will come as a surprise to exactly nobody, is that your greater exposure to early life trauma was associated with greater psychiatric impairment and more severe opioid use disorder. And that's not a new finding. That's been found in multiple studies, that kind of correlation. So the first set of results just describe the patients in the study. And Remember, to be in this study, you had to be over 18 and have used illicit opiates at least once and be on Mechanical Turk. So 93% of people who were over 18 on Mechanical Turk and used illicit opiates had at least one early life trauma with a mean number of traumas of 9.9, so a lot. 65% met criteria for opioid use disorder, which is also a lot because... You know, a lot of people use opioids recreationally and don't necessarily meet criteria for opioid use disorder. 10% were mild, 14% moderate, and 41% severe opioid use disorder. 47% had never received treatment for opioid use disorder. And among those with opioid use disorder, the mean money spent on opioids over the past 30 days was $400. So people are spending a lot of money. I always look for what I can learn from studies other than the primary results, and the demographics were somewhat shocking to me. The very high rate of early life trauma, the high prevalence of opioid use disorder, they were both striking. And the fact that almost everybody had at least one trauma and the mean number of traumas was 9.9, it did make me think the traumas were kind of clustered. And I was talking about this with someone at the office who has experienced a lot of early life trauma. And that person and I were talking about how these traumas tend to cluster. You know, this person had received multiple childhood injuries, but the reason they received injuries was because they were maybe didn't have the most careful parenting, you know, so the parents weren't watching out for them as well and allowed them to receive these injuries. And they were clustered, multiple injuries, not just one that was a freak accident. And then that kind of parenting connected to other problems that the person had experienced in their life. So these traumas do tend to cluster. The next set of results was about the association between opioid use disorder and early life trauma. So there was a strong association between the two. The number of early life traumas in people with opiate use disorder was 11. People without opiate use disorder was 7. So a lot fewer early life traumas in people without opioid use disorder. There was a dose response curve, meaning the more severe early life traumas or the larger numbers of early life traumas were associated with more severe opioid use disorder. We saw the same trend in other measures of opioid use severity. So more early life traumas led to more use of heroin, more overdoses, and more money spent on opioids. 68% of respondents believed that their early childhood trauma had contributed to their current opioid use. The most robust association with psychiatric disorders and opioid use disorder was perceived stress. And that was stress the patient was currently experiencing. Interestingly, the current psychiatric functioning like depression and anxiety did not seem to mediate that relationship between early life trauma and opioid use disorder. And then finally, the connection between opioid use disorder and early life trauma was statistically significant. They did a analysis that they called a mediation and moderation analysis. There is a massive data table demonstrating the modeling, and I will not subject anybody to an attempted description of this table, but here's a basic summary. The presence of depression, anxiety, and stress all accounted for some of the opiate use disorder, about 25% of the variance, 
but the only significant mediator appears to be perceived stress. So basically, if you had early life trauma, it was caused depression or anxiety. It also caused opiate use disorder, but the two were kind of independent. They were not statistically connected. In the PowerPoint on YouTube, I'll put a figure from the supplemental appendix that kind of demonstrates this concept. But in general, statistically, they could not reject the null hypothesis, meaning they couldn't reject the hypothesis that there was no association between depression and anxiety and opiate use disorder. So John, those are the results. What did you think of them? So just to summarize, so basically what they're saying is that that there was a relationship between childhood life traumas and development of opioid use disorder, and that that group had kind of higher rates of anxiety and depression, but that you couldn't determine that that was the mechanism that led to the development of the opioid use disorder? Yes. So the people with early life trauma had depression and anxiety, and they had opioid use disorder, but the depression and anxiety was not a way station to developing opioid use disorder. The two seem to be independent. It is an interesting idea. And I think it, it kind of does support, I think, the growing amount of literature probably suggesting more of an epigenetic mechanism of action for these events leading to opioid use disorder. I know that you can't say that from this study, but it certainly would suggest that maybe that's a possibility here. Well, yeah. And it does reflect what I see in clinical practice because a lot of times my patients ask me and ask themselves, why am I like this? Why did this happen to me? Is it because I'm depressed and I was depressed so I was trying to medicate myself and make myself happy by using opioids? And there's sort of a popular psychology framework that drug use is all self-medication for underlying mental health disorder. But I'm not sure that that's really true. So it's interesting. Yeah, it's, it, it is really interesting. That's why I like this study. So finally, will these results help me in patient care? So in summary, again, greater exposure to early life trauma was associated with more severe current opiate use disorder, as well as greater psychiatric impairment. Depression, anxiety, and stress may partially mediate this relationship, maybe, and current perceived stress stood out as the most significant mediator. I felt that the author's were a little overblown in their assessment of their conclusions. They said that the findings lend support to an overarching hypothesis that early life trauma-induced changes in brain function may represent biological endophenotypes, I'm quoting here, that portend the development of an opiate use disorder vulnerability pathway mediated by internalizing symptoms and altered stress sensitivity. So that's what they would like to show. However, this is just a survey. It does not show anything about anybody's biological endophenotype. So I'm not sure they can conclude that from this set of surveys. But I did think it was useful. My patients are similar to those in this study. Most of my patients with opiate use disorder have experienced significant trauma, both as children and as adults, and they have huge current perceived stress in their current lives. The outcome, which was the development of opiate use disorder, was clinically relevant, and it's something my patients are concerned about. And although this was an exploratory study that does not clearly define an intervention, I think I will use the knowledge that patients with early life trauma are more vulnerable to opiate use disorder. And of course, I will be particularly careful about my opioid prescribing and counseling in this population. So John, will this study change your practice in any way? 
No, I, I think that the, the one kind of takeaway point from a study like this is I think that we often say that like, there's an art to medicine. I think like as part of the art to medicine, you would say like someone that has a lot of trauma and someone that has a lot of kind of anxiety, depression, that's poorly controlled. We kind of proceed with caution when we're prescribing controlled substances. But I think that this is now kind of putting data as a name to what we've always called the art, right? Because I think most of us in clinical practice probably encounter a group with like heavy burden of, of early childhood trauma. And we do probably all feel that they have a high risk of development of a substance use disorder. But I think that we never really had kind of the, maybe the data behind it like this. Well, thank you for listening to this article. Thank you for discussing it with me. Before we finish, I did want to include some comments from our listeners. So we got a very nice comment on Twitter from Tim Roberts at Tim R-O-B-E 5193509 in case anybody wants to follow him, who said, nice walk tonight, stretching legs for the dog and I and taking in episode number one of At Addiction Medicine JC and thinking about alcohol intake and cardiovascular risk. So Tim, he agreed with us that the cardiovascular benefit from alcohol was likely due to other lifestyle factors and not the alcohol itself. Thank you for listening to episode one. You've got a few more episodes at your fingertips. I hope you enjoy them. We also got a question on Facebook from Dr. Randy Gello regarding episode 10 on buprenorphine tapering. He asks, quote, you made mention that lifelong MAT may be best and tapering may cause issues. I'm paraphrasing. What are we going to do when we reach our waiver patient cap? I don't have a great answer for him. The only two things I could think of were to advocate for legislative change to eliminate the cap or try to get the PCPs of your stable patients to take over the prescribing. So how would you answer that, John? What are you going to do when you hit your cap of 275 patients? I guess a couple things. I think it'd be, first of all, it's really hard to hit that cap. I actually just had to do my numbers the other day and I do a lot of addiction medicine and I'm not near the 275. But I do think two things. One is I think in addiction medicine, we have a couple of things that are somewhat stigmatizing. I do think that this idea of like a cap and a waiver, they are somewhat barriers to care. I I think that a lot of things that we do in medicine, at least from a primary care perspective, are much more complicated than this. And to kind of add those extra barriers in, I understand that they had good intentions, but I do think at this point, it is a little stigmatizing. I was also really happy to say that I'm not a faculty member for residency, but I do work closely with the faculty and and work with teaching residents. And at the last uh, faculty meeting, we talked about updated ACGME training guidelines for family medicine. And I think it was really exciting, at least I I really perked up in the part of the conversation that actually MAT training is going to be like a core competency that they're requiring all graduating family medicine physicians to have some degree of training in. So I think things like that are very progressive. I think that the idea that you can be practicing kind of general internal medicine, general family medicine, and have no exposure or or training to treat addiction medicine probably isn't the future. It's sort of like depression and anxiety. At one point, psychiatry kind of owned this. And it's just such a common problem that I think we all own it. Yeah, I agree. And that is exciting about the new residency requirements for training in addiction medicine. We have those for internal medicine as well. And actually, this is the first year that all of our residents are not only going to do the eight-hour buprenorphine waiver training, like all our residents have been doing it for years now, but they're also going to have mandatory sessions shadowing in a buprenorphine clinic to see it in practice. Well, thank you for listening to the Addiction Medicine Journal Club. The best part of any journal club is the conversation, and we want to hear what you have to say. To have your opinions about the articles included in a future episode, you can send us an email message on Twitter or Facebook. 
join our Facebook group or comment on our YouTube channel. The link are in the show notes. Original theme music was composed and performed by Benjamin Kennedy. Audio editing by Angela Olfest. Video production by Paul Kennedy. Addiction Medicine Journal Club is intended for educational purposes only and should not be considered medical advice. The views expressed here are our own and do not necessarily reflect those of our employers or the authors of the articles we review. All patient information has been modified to protect their identities. Thank you for being part of the conversation and have a great day.